hear that uh, other franchises are, are unhappy with how much the Mets spend. Does that matter to you or concern you? Is it something you have a response to? Yeah, nobody's called me and told me that. So, I, I mean, I I just do my job. Um, and if Steve says put together the best team we can um, and gives us the resources to do it, I do it. You've heard that sentiment, though, yeah? Nobody has called me and told me that. Yeah. No. The MLB started an economic reform committee. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm not aware of that. <laughs> It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, February the 19th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you can show up on podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And you can get me on Instagram. Talking Mets, no G. And of course, I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network as well as RisingApple.com. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. A lot to talk about on this Sunday. An economic panel over at MLB. You heard the quote from Billy Epler coming in. Realignment, a topic that was talked about. We really didn't get to it last week. How can we improve the Mets offense without an addition? There might be a couple of ways. Mark Canna gave you a hint. I've been thinking about another player a little bit. And the late Tim McCarver, former Mets announcer, former national baseball announcer, former St. Louis Cardinal, some memories of uh, Tim McCarver, uh, a great article by Mike Vaccaro in the New York Post about McCarver. And, uh, of course, there's been some mailbag comments that throughout the show I'm going to, you know, interwoven into the content. So, you know, there's that. I know that I had promised Evangelic of The Athletic had to table that conversation for another week, hoping to have him on soon. Obviously, the economic impact panel, uh, you know, he was one of the uh, writers that broke it over at The Athletic. So he was a little bit busy today, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, stuff going on over there. So I just wanted to get that out there. Well, one observation, you know, we're only a f- you know positional players reported today, so the gang's all here. You saw a slim down Vogelback, you saw Lindor with his big smile, and Pete Alonso, and Jeff McNeil, and so on and so forth. So the gang's all here. The journey has begun officially. I mean, it began the other day, but now it's it's really begun. And um, you know, I-, I have to say right now, I look at the roster. I look at this team, and this is a good thing. I mean, look, what was it? Pakoda predicted the Mets as a 96-win team. I, I hate to get into predictions, and I hate to go, well, if they stay healthy, they could do this, they could do that, the whole thing. And I remember last year we did something where we kind of got a little goofy and did back-of-the-paper-bag math and took war and looked at where all the war combined with the you know the Mets and some of the other teams where they fell. And I'm not going to get too big into that this year because – you know, quite honestly, I agree with Pakota. This is, you know, all things considered a 95-win team. But 
Here's why I think you're going to get bored of spring training pretty quickly. After the cliches and the newness, you know, cracking the cellophane off with the uh, the players, and you get the chance to see all the articles about the ghost fork. I mean, that's going to be like you want to talk about what I think is going to be the most overused term in 2023: ghost fork. You know, count it right now. Uh, and some of the other you know stuff that you know everybody will be reporting on, whether it be Alvarez and his development, Beatty and his development. Whatever, so on and so forth. The reason you're going to get bored, and it's actually a good thing of spring training, and I don't even think it'll take to St. Paddy's Day. I think it'll somewhere around March 8th to 10th. Maybe the WBC will give you some attention, but when you look at the Mets roster, I mean, truly, and especially with these guys all going to the WBC, a lot of them anyway, they're... Positional players are set. Their roster set. There is no positional battles. You have your starting lineup, Nimmo, Marte, Lindor, Alonzo, McNeil, Vogelback, Canna, Escobar, third, uh, Nervaez uh, behind the plate. I got that name right. I know I'll get to that a little later. I had some fun. I had, had some fun commentary from you guys about the uh, the names and my botching of the names. I'm working on it. I promise I'm working on it. Then you got the bench. So you got your nine starters, and then out of the rest of your bench – Nito, Ruff, Guillaume, Tommy Pham, uh, that puts you at 13. So you got your 13 positional players. Nito's 10, Ruff is 11, Guillaume is 12, Pham is 13. You got your five starters, Verlander, Scherzer, Senga, Carrasco, Quintana. That's the 18-man roster. You've got your core five bullpen arms, Edwin Diaz, Adovino, Robertson, uh, Rayleigh, and Drew Smith. And, uh, and at that point, you're fighting basically... Uh, for three bullpen spots, that's where it gets a little bit interesting. So I don't think we're going to have too much to say about, uh, you know, Danny Mendick or the kids like Beatty and Alvarez. You know, I don't think you're going to see Michael Perez make the team behind the plate unless something crazy happens with the catching situation. Um, you know, essentially, everybody else is going to be playing for, uh, you know, AAA. They're going to be a AAA, and as you have the roster machinations throughout the summer, with injuries and doubleheaders and whatnot, you'll see where this thing goes. So I think you're going to get bored with spring training pretty quickly. So the next couple of weeks will be the time where I think we're most engaged and having the best conversation. And who knows, maybe the WBC will give us some uh, nice respite. Uh, And maybe it's actually a good thing because when you have a team like the Mets that is so well-constructed, at least on paper, uh, a lot of veterans, uh, uh, thanks to the wallet of Steve Cohen, which is a topic here in the open, uh, they were able to bring the band back together for the most part. Uh, you know, you could sit back and you can, you know, look at the kids, which is a big part like we talked about last week, and Kodai Senga and things like that. So uh, I think you'll be begging for the season to begin by the time, uh, you know, I don't even think St. Patty's Day by March 10th. So uh, that's just an early observation. And The articles are fun now. The cliches are fun now. Talk to me in about two weeks. You'll probably be like, oh, my God. I know the first games will be played in about a week. Uh, And I'm going to tell you another thing before I get and I I kick this really, really kick this thing off. I don't want freaking out about numbers and wins and losses. I'm not even looking at the grapefruit standings. (laughs) I don't even know if I know. I don't think I know. The grapefruit standings, uh, you know, uh, year in and year. I don't know. The, I don't know if the best record was last year. At that point, I know they won 101 games, but I know that I don't know what their grapefruit league record was on on the whole thing. So, I've been saying, and I said it last week, and it was the intro last week, and I know that this will probably be one of those topics that you'll get sick of pretty quick. But I need to pound this home 
because if you read the article and you haven't, I, su- I suggest they have a lot of deals over the athletic. Again, no vested interest in you subscribing over there. Uh, they have a lot of deals over the athletic. Get over the athletic. Read Evan Drellett's uh, article about the new MLB committee on economic impact. And what I said about uh, arrows being pointed at the Mets and Steve Cohen, uh, this article really puts it into, really crystallizes it right in front of you. Now, with the bankruptcy of the Bally Sports uh, 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 Network, you know, owns a bunch of RSNs, I think about 14 or 15 teams, maybe more, may not have the ability to televise their games. They're going to have to have some kind of streaming or some kind of alternative situation. And I know there was talk of maybe Apple TV getting involved there. And, like, I look at, you know, and I saw some of the commentary on Twitter how, you know, Apple TV has had some kind of agreement to stream uh, the MLS. I look at how, for years, the Sunday ticket and the NFL was able to, you could watch any game. You know, you're a, you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan or a Pittsburgh Steelers fan or a Los Angeles Rams fan, whatever. Name the team, Cincinnati Bengals fan, and you live in New York, you're going to watch that game. Now, Sunday Ticket used to be a DirecTV product, and now I think it's a I haven't bought it in years, so now it's a little bit different. But you were able to get the games you wanted. You know, I used to get Sunday Ticket when I had DirecTV many, many years ago. I used to use it to watch my fantasy players, you know, at that point. And then as, you know, time went on, I was like, you know, you got the Red Zone channel and you got the Highlight channel on Cablevision. It, it wasn't as important for me to watch the games on Sunday, so I moved away from that. So I look at baseball and I look at the whole situation, and the real – crux of the conversation about economic impact is I think Rob Manfred's finally saying here is you've got to you've got to make this this product available I understand local revenues I understand local commercials but the fact that you know there are markets where if I live and I'm a Mets fan and I am completely blacked out because of the local team uh, even on a streaming product that I buy you know makes it crazy I mean on on uh, on the uh the MLB Network app, uh, I get blocked out of the Mets in this market because you know it makes it hard at times to to potentially get the product if I'm not in front of you know it used to be my Slingbox, Slingbox is not available anymore. Now you got the SNY app and what have you. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it. No matter where you are in the country, if you're paying into that app, you're paying into that service. And I got to tell you something. I look at what they charge for the Directv. No, well, not Directv for the the NFL Sunday Ticket. NBA uh, uh, League Pass, all these different things. I don't believe, and I don't have the NBA one, but I don't believe there's any blackout there. I can't see how these teams can't get together and they can't figure out a way to slice up a revenue pie that's fair for all 30 teams on a streaming basis. Now, I get it. I get, and this would hurt the Mets. The Mets have local revenues that far exceed something that the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Tampa Bay Rays or the Oakland Athletics are able to produce. But in the end, and I think this really ties into what I'm annoyed about when it comes to the arrows pointed at the Mets. In the end, with the kind of pie they have, what is it, a $10 billion pie, whatever it is, a $6 billion pie, I am not coming on here to pretend that I'm some expert like the you know the great Maury Brown, Biz of Baseball, the old Biz of Baseball website, Forbes. I'm not Maury Brown. I don't dive into the weeds on the economics of this game. I know the concept, just like you know the concept. And here I am. I'm reading this article by Evan Jelich, and 
it really smells just like the kind of stuff you heard back in 1993, 94, 95, when they pretty much blew the game up. Owners against owners, owners hating other owners. Cone is going to be the guy that's going to become the poster child, and the Mets are going to become the poster child because, and I got to tell you, I don't think it has anything more to do if the Mets didn't sign Correa, and they really didn't sign Correa, but if they didn't make that move, that was the move that ticked everybody else off, that pushed everybody else over the top. Because I don't see them being angry about Bogarts going to San Diego San Diego, or Trey Turner going to Philadelphia, or for years what the Yankees and the Dodgers have done, and to a lesser degree the Phillies and the Padres. But once the Mets did it, once this guy who a lot of owners did not want in this game because they knew he came from an industry that's about achieving and investment and probably pushing things to the edge, not breaking the rules, but taking every available resource and pushing it to the very edge in order to make money. And he has this product that, quite honestly, I have to say, has always been underdeveloped, going all the way back to the days of Mrs. Joan Payson. No offense, the Mets never leveraged a position. They never leveraged 69. They never leveraged 86. They never leveraged 2000. They have this ballpark they built in the middle of basically junkyards. They've, you know, that, there's a politics to that. They never leveraged any of that. And now they see this guy going out and saying, hey, I'm going to do this. And they don't like it. And it's cr- crazy to me as I read that um, I read this quote. And this is like, I mean, this is where these guys are like mobsters. I mean, go back to how they went after A-Rod. I mean, they hired fixers the league to go after A-Rod. These guys are truly mobsters the way they act. I mean, an official with the rival team told The Athletic in December that Cohen's spending was going to have consequences for him down the road. Well, what does that mean? They're going to change the rules so he can't spend? I mean, that's going to have consequences on the Dodgers, the Padres, the Phillies, the Yankees as well. I'm wondering what that means. What it does mean, and it's the most important comment in that entire article as they go and and I'll throw some more at you. Uh, you know, this is talking about the owners. They demand everything's got to change. So the answer is to put a study committee together for labor, the source said. The whole idea is to basically come up with a system that gets to a salary cap. Rob didn't lie by saying it has to do with the regional sports networks dealing with the RS, uh, uh, dealing with the RSNs because these teams will lose more money and the disparity will get bigger. So they're using that excuse to have a study committee. Um, you know... I have a hard time believing, and you know, and I'm not a, a strict players guy. I'm pretty balanced as I try to be in everything. We had our friend Joe Casal, former agent in the business of sports last year during the lockout, talk about it. The fact that teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox and teams that had payrolls pretty similar to 20 years ago have those similar payrolls um, makes you wonder, have their revenues not grown? The game has clearly grown. You can't tell me that the revenues from the total MLB pie from 2000 to 2023 have not grown. You know they have. Uh, There's tons of revenue streams that they didn't have 23 years ago. Um, You know, are are some teams growing more than others? Have teams declined? I mean, ultimately, my problem is this. Everybody's going to have an hour at the Mets. And I told you that, and that's going to put pressure on the team. Nobody's going to feel sorry for the Mets. I think it's going to make it really hard for the Mets to make deals at the deadline. You heard it here first. If there is a star available that a team wants to trade, 
I can see an owner, and it really happened with Juan Soto. Not that I thought there was a fit that would make sense for the Mets as well in terms of prospect capital, but you saw it with the Nats in Washington, D.C. with Juan Soto. They weren't going to let him go to the, the Mets. I could see them not wanting to trade to the to the Mets and Cohen. I could see that being kind of like their, you know, I'll show you. Maybe that's the consequences for Cohen and things like that. But what bothers me about the whole thing is you're going to have teams that want a salary cap. They're going to curb Cohen's spending. But within that salary cap, I guarantee you, and I don't even know who these teams are, there is thought in those teams. They have no uh, interest in improving what they're doing. They have no interest in saying, okay, we have this salary cap. We now have shrunk the market for some mid-tier guys. Think of guys like Mark Canna or Eduardo Escobar, potentially free agents in a couple of years. Maybe their markets get shrunk, and a team like the Marlins or the Pirates or the A's or the Reds can maybe afford them under that system. No, they're not. It's going to be the same marketing of prospects and endless rebuilds that keep general managers employed forever and takes all the pressure off of them. You saw that during the search for uh, GM uh, for the Mets. Oh, well, they don't want to come here. There's a little bit of too much pressure here. They're very comfortable where they are. That's code where they want. uh, And look, I don't blame guys for wanting not to lose their job, but not doing your job well or marketing and spinning what your job is to keep your job in perpetuity and have a, a, a spin to the fans, which, by the way, the problem in the world today is all these quote-unquote smart people that either run organizations or run marketing departments or have a corporate mindset think they're smarter than they are, and they don't think the average fan could see through it. The bottom line is is you build a team, and you build a good team, even if it's a team that's not ready to win a championship, but a team where they see an honest effort to compete and win in a league that has expanded or lowered the bar of entry into the postseason, they'll come out to the ballpark. I've been to Pittsburgh, great ballpark. Uh, you know, uh, they'll come. They'll come. I mean, it wasn't too long ago where they had a team that, uh, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015, that was a pretty good Pirates team. Now, I know they couldn't keep it together, and that's part of what I guess the economic panel will discuss. But I don't see a scenario where the players accept – any kind of salary cap. And I'll tell you what, if it goes that route, and again, they'll use the Mets and Steve Cohen, even though this has been going on for years and years and years and years, and it never seemed to bother anybody, and I think it was Jeff Passan and Billy Epler mentioned it during his press conference yesterday that compared the Mets payroll versus the CBD, CBT, competitive balance tax, to years where the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Red Sox went over, And it's really not historically all that significant. Now, the dollars are bigger because of inflation. I mean, I'm going to go back to that goofy supermarket thing. You know, you're going to pay more for the price of eggs, but you're not going to pay more for the price of a shortstop? I mean, come on. You could could intellectualize that for me. Cars have gone up, but third basemen and starting pitchers haven't. I mean, I know you're all laughing as I'm talking about this, but but am I right? And here's the other part, and I'm going to be, I'm going to say something cruel right now. And I hate the fact that I'm saying this because there are some markets I'm going to mention that have a ton of history and probably have some great old school longtime fans and maybe even some younger ones that would have their heart ripped out. But if Brooklyn and New York, the Giants and the Dodgers could move because at that point in time, 
And there's a lot of debate about how viable the, the, the markets were. But look at the attendance numbers. They were hurting. Walter O'Malley, uh, Robert Moses, all, you know, all, all the things that went on. I'm not going to get into that right now. That's not, this is not about a history lesson. If they could move, maybe it's time to start to look at and say, as, and we'll get to realignment. We'll get to realignment. You know, maybe we're bored with the Mets roster because we're not even talking Mets yet. Here we are. We're, we're 15 minutes into the show or so, and we haven't mentioned really a lot about the Mets. But this is what happened. This is what the, the, the big topic was. Start to ask yourself, is Tampa market, is Pittsburgh a market, is Oakland a market? Hey, is Cincinnati still a baseball market? Yeah, I know there's NFL teams in those markets, and there's NHL teams in those markets. NHL's a different economic model. But there's no NBA team in Pittsburgh. There's no NBA team in Cincinnati. They had ABA teams. They had an NBA team. There's reasons. Maybe those those markets can't support certain sports. Now, I know baseball doesn't want to sit here and punt on the Rust Belt. And I'm sure they don't want to leave the Midwest. And you don't want to have a league that's just based on the coasts and some hotbeds like Vegas and Nashville and places where a lot of northerners are, you know, Charlotte, that are are moving to and turning into northeast light. But the country's changing. I mean, you all know that. Look at the demographic shift and people who are leaving. And it's not manifest destiny. Is that the right way to look at it? Or it's not an inalienable right. Maybe that's the right, better way. You know, I always love to, you know, make comments and then I botch it and then you guys give me feedback. Maybe it's not, it's not an inalienable right for Oakland to have a baseball team. Just because Pittsburgh has a rich history doesn't mean they deserve to have the team forever. It's sad if they leave. But maybe they're not, you know, maybe that, that it's not a viable market. It's a football town, maybe. You got to start being honest about what are viable towns for your sport. The NBA has done it for years. The NHL, a Canadian sport, bounced out of Canadian provinces because they couldn't make money because of the Canadian economy. That's the NHL and Canada. The NFL has bounced on, you know, they bounced on L.A. at one point. And I know that there's so much more to those things than just what we're talking about. I know it's much more nuanced than what I'm saying. So I'm not trying to, you know, use whataboutism here. But what I'm saying is to make this all about the Mets and Cohen and and turn that whole economic conversation into that is myopic. It's insincere. It's insulting, quite honestly, to anybody with basic education. Anybody who watches the sport, any fan base, knows that's BS. That it's much more nuanced than that. And the ones that don't are listening to too many hot takes on Instagram, talk radio, or Twitter. They really are. And if this gets ugly in a few years, and it could, and I'll tell you what, it could get real ugly if the Mets continue to win, and if Cohen goes out this winter and signs Otani Machado, you know you know that that's going to be the Waterloo here of this whole thing. If Cohen goes out and signs a Machado or Tani, the crying and the railing will go uh, over the top. You're going to tell me the Colorado Rockies couldn't sign anybody? I mean, they hardly did anything this offseason. They have no money in that market. None at all. I mean, Florida's a tricky market. Miami, it's, and I was just down in Miami. You know, I mean, I know that the Dolphins do incredibly well. Look at what Pat Riley and Mickey Arizon did with the Heat. I mean, they were in trouble before Riley got there 30 years ago. 
I mean, it can be done, but I'm also wondering, can the sport and what the economics of the sport, and maybe that's the whole rub here. I know you're saying, well, that's a salary cap league. That's a salary cap league. You still have to recruit people to come and come to watch a, a game, or else you, it doesn't matter if you're salary cap or not. And quite honestly, the towns I mentioned, the Pittsburghs, the Tampas, the Oaklands, to a lesser degree, the Cincinnati's, they're not having people show up. I mean, they basically, uh, you know, executives in Cincinnati thumb their nose at the fans. I mean, you even got the Red Sox talking about buying tickets. You have to put a product out there that is worth people investing in. And sometimes I think the fans and the media could take it to an extreme. Like, you know, and times are tough now, so it's hard to ask people if your team really doesn't have a product that excites you to go out and invest in a professional baseball game even more than once a year, maybe even once a year. It's a big commitment. I mean, when you're paying $300 worth of groceries, $400 for your groceries for a week, and that's what it's going to cost plus some to go to a ball game, what are you going to do? Not go to the supermarket for a week and not eat, not feed your kids? You can't do that. But it's so much more than that. And I really think, I think it all ties together. Uh, look, I understand that there has to be some form of socialism in sports. You can't eliminate the competition, even though if you're good like a Steve Cohen or like the Dodgers are or like the Yankees, because you got to have teams to play. It can't be, it can't be the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington Generals. You can't have that. That's not good for the sport. But I don't think it's that. And after the break, you know, a realignment was a topic that some of you guys had brought up in mailbags before. Uh, maybe that's the answer. Because I'm at a point where, as someone who was a who is a traditionalist, but is a traditionalist who pushed for a wild card, who pushed for some of the good that comes from the NBA, progressive NBA, progressive NFL, more like the NBA. I mean, the NBA has been one of the most progressive leagues out there when it came to playoffs, seating. You know, you know, NHL with some of the rules. I mean, even with rules, like adapting to the changing environment and making sure their product is entertaining. NFL, too. I mean, gambling plays a lot into the NFL, but they knew that their bread and butter wasn't, you know, uh, three yards and a cloud of dust and a field goal. They knew that, so they had to make it so that you could have games that are 35-31, that you could have Super Bowls that are 38-35. You know, they really don't want the 1990 championship game in San Francisco where the Giants went on a field goal. What was it, 10-7? They don't want that. That's not entertaining in their world. So baseball could maybe do some of that stuff. So we got a lot to talk about. It still is talking Mets, but this whole economic impact panel should be the Steve Cohen New York Mets economic impact panel, and that's wrong because that's not the issue. Marketing the product, allowing, taking away barriers of entry – People will pay for this product. You're going to tell me if I could watch the Mets anywhere, anytime, anyhow on this app, and I could cut my cable cord because I've been dying to, and it's $25 a month now, maybe it doubles in price, I'd probably pay it. I mean, shoot, I think at one point, you know, the Sunday ticket was a couple hundred bucks. They'll pay it. I mean, some people are paying 400 bucks for cable, and they don't watch 95% of what's on the damn thing. And look, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. And you're more than welcome to tell me. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. I am not professing to be an economics expert on any of this stuff. I haven't studied it enough. I'm not interested to dive into the weeds. I just know it as a, a fan. 
And I'm sorry, it's much more nuanced than that. I know there's a lot of barriers to watching baseball on streaming. It's better. I mean, I, I never used to get the MLB app until this past season I got it. I finally said, oh, let me check it out. Because I used to watch the Mets on – I'm a traditional guy. I watch them on cable. But I started to want to go back and watch – you know, it made it easier for me to go back and watch an inning and look at, you know, when uh, 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 a pitcher came in and maybe I was watching it. But now I could really – because now I'm not invested in maybe the outcome of the game. I could really – hone in on certain micro at-bats, and that was more for me to analyze things. Or if there was a West Coast game, kind of you know pick and choose innings to see how things turned out when I wasn't able to watch the flow of the game. It's a good product. Make it more accessible. Make money out of it. Make money. You've got something to make money. And if those markets can't make money, it's not about handicapping the mats. It's about maybe they don't belong in those markets. Maybe it's time to look at other markets, Nashville, Portland, Vegas. I hate to say it, Vegas. I mean, it's going to be Colorado on steroids out there. It'll be the same damn thing. 13, 12 games, unless they can put a humidor out there. But it's a growing town. They got football out there now. Beautiful stadium. I saw it being built. I've been, I go to Vegas once a year in August, usually, for a convention. And that's a beautiful stadium. I'm right in the center of it all. You go to Mandalay Bay, you can look out your hotel window. It's right there, right smack in front of you. So, anyway, all right, let's take a quick break. When we return... Realignment, is that part of the answer? Because that's another early spring training conversation. It's amazing. We're not talking about positional battles. We're talking about realignment. We'll get into all of that. Uh, Economic panel. Who knows? There's always some other fun stuff to talk about. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big-time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one. Triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Imagine if the East was, and again, it's independent American national it's just one big blend. It would be the Yankees. It would be the Mets. 
It would be the Red Sox, and it would be the Phillies. I mean, it's perfect. I mean, as long as the Yankees don't lose the Red Sox and the Mets don't lose the Phillies, I, and the Yankees and the Mets gain each other, I think it's awesome. Now, I do think there's a lot of people who would oppose that because they would say, well, it, it, you get the Yanks and the Mets too much, it's played out, it loses the special nature of when they do hook up during the Subway Series. Nonsense. To me, what's the old expression? Familiarity what? Breeds? It breeds contempt. Contempt. Yeah. Familiarity yeah. No, breeds think- contempt. And I think it be I think it makes the rivalry significantly more intense. I agree. Winning the division is still a big part of this. Now, obviously, the Red Sox and the and the Phillies, especially the now the new Phillies, um, have a real um, you know rivalry with the other two teams there. But the Red Sox, the the Yankees and the Mets battling it out every year to try to make the postseason simply by winning the division is something that's it's that sounds amazing actually. Because all of those games mean something. Yeah. It's not like we chalked it up last year. Remember the Mets and the Yankees played last year, and it was kind of like, yeah, this game, was, it's, it's, it's important, but it doesn't really mean anything to you know, the Yankees. They're not taking it seriously, whereas the Mets were like, oh, this is like the World Series to us. You know what <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean? So it just I think if, it, if there's more at stake than just, you know, cross-rivalry rival uh, for, you know, four games a season – I think it makes a lot of sense. Imagine the Yanks and the Mets playing in late September, and one of the teams, either the Yankees or the Mets, like right at the cut line of the wild card, that the, the second wild card spot, and like say if the Mets are two games out and there's five games to play, mm-hmm. and the Yankees sweep them or vice versa. Not only do they not do they not win the division, but they don't even get a wild card spot. You want to talk about ratcheting up the it. intensity? about the Mets. Mets spend too much money. Their roster's too loaded. You know, they still soar about the Correa signing, non-signing. And there's an economic panel trying to figure out how to put a salary cap in. That'll go well. We won't have, like, a year and a half of two years of no baseball. We're at, what a way to destroy the sport. Well, baseball's taking a hiatus while the players say, hey, I'll just sit this one out. Um, you know, the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, or whatever other entertainment that someone could, could, could cobble together, you know, will take Precedence. That's real smart. But before we uh, claim gloom and doom, I want to go back because some of you had talked about earlier in February before pitchers and catchers about a, uh, an article, a really good article by Jim Bowden, The Athletic, uh, former GM of the Cincinnati Reds, Washington Natural- Nationals, um, and talked about a topic that I got to be honest with you, I've been stumping for for about 15 years, going back to my days running nybaseballdigest.com. And I don't have the archive on there anymore. Long story. I won't get into that. But I had wrote a piece years and years and years ago about how, and this drove people nuts, because here's this guy, claims to be traditionalist, hated the ghost runner, hated seven-inning doubleheaders, uh, but, but is okay with the DH, I don't like a lot of the like the three batter rule. I'm not so sure. I'm crazy. I'm definitely not crazy about the bigger bases and the the pitcher rules. I'm okay with the clock. I'm not okay with the throws over to first. Um, you know, here's this guy that this is weird blend of traditional and progressive, because I do believe it's important for a sport to adapt to the times. But sometimes I think we force change just for the sake of change. And I think baseball's done a little bit of that with some of the rules they put together. But I'll leave that into another time and a day because we will get into the new rules. But I honestly 
I want to watch a game with the new rules to be able to speak about them. Because I do not believe I could intellectualize a lot of these new rules until I see how they actually play out. All it is is speculation. I saw what you know the MLB put out, a bunch of you know tours in the West Coast and Arizona and, and, and Florida and spring training. And that's their sell job. That's fine. Until I see it in, in real play, uh, I, I can't comment. So, But you want to fix the economic issues of baseball. Maybe it's time to look at doing what the NHL and the NBA do, and it's Eastern Conference and Western Conference. Because, and then the divisions split up within those conferences, just like Jim Bowden talked about. And I don't remember how I played it out all those years ago, um, but I've been a proponent of this for a long time. Now, it does create an oversaturation of Mets and Yankees and Dodgers and Angels, but I honestly think we're at a point where I don't think you'll ever be able to recapture the specialness of those early years of interleague. You're just never going to get back to that because it was new. It was special. The Mets and Yankees never played unless it was that dopey Mayor's Trophy game from the 70s, and nobody cared about it. And then once they played in the actual World Series in 2000, I mean, come on. I mean, the Yankees and the Dodgers used to play all the time. I know it was for the for all the marbles in the World Series, but they played. So, you know, how special did it get at that point? You know, wouldn't it be cool to have these inter-borough uh, rivalries? And I think you heard BT talk about it, Brandon Tierney from the fan. Like, what if the Mets knocked the Yankees out of the postseason the last week of the regular season? Like, that would really bring juice back to the whole damn thing. But you have this issue where a lot of the revenues revenue issues are within regions. We talked about maybe the Midwest or, you know, the South down there with Miami and, and, and Tampa and things like that. Well, if you start to regionalize these divisions and regionalize the sport, because it is a regional sport, then maybe you could mitigate the competitive imbalance and not have to blow up the economic system where a team, could, they want to build a certain way, they can build a certain way, but you're not going to tell me a division. And you look at, let me read these divisions to you that Bowden put together, because I thought they were well done. You have an East Division, which is the Red Sox, the Mets, the Yankees, the Phillies. You have a North Division, which is Cincinnati, Cleveland, Detroit, Toronto. You have a Mid-Atlantic Division, which is Baltimore. He puts in a Charlotte expansion team. Because let's face it, this is predicated on 32 teams and two more expansion teams. The Pirates and the Nationals. Then you have the Southeast Division, the Braves, the Marlins, a Nashville team, and Tampa. And then you go to the Western Conference. You have a Midwest Division, the two Chicago clubs, Milwaukee, Minnesota. Then you got the Southwest Division, Houston, Kansas City, St. Louis, Texas. Then you have a Pacific Coast Division, Colorado, uh, Las Vegas, or maybe the A's stay in Oakland, Seattle, San Francisco. And then you have a West Division, which is Arizona, L.A. team, San Diego. And when you start breaking through these divisions, you're going to tell me the Pittsburgh Pirates economically. Now, I know the Nats have a new ownership group coming in, and they've been a spender in the past. But And that's Washington, D.C. That's There's money there in that area. We know that. But you're going to tell me the Pirates can't compete in a division with the Charlotte expansion team, the Nats, and the Orioles to win that division and potentially make the playoffs. I'm sorry. I, there's no excuse there. You're going to tell me Miami can't compete with the Braves. I know they have uh, media money, but they have their own you know, economic limitations down there. Nashville, Tampa. And by the way, Places like Charlotte and Nashville, I guess I should say, as more New Yorkers move down there, they're going to have more economic power. i got a buddy down in Charlotte. There's a ton of banking money down there. 
You're going to tell me the Brewers can't compete with the Chicago teams and the Twins? I mean, Greg, you know, again, I know what you say. When these teams get stacked, the Mets, the Yankees, the Dodgers, it's hard to beat them in a seven-game series. But you can. You can beat them. So to me, look, you've already thrown tradition out the window. You're going to see it in full force in just a few days when the first spring training game is played under these new rules. You're going to have bigger bases. You're not going to be able to throw over more than once. You have a pitch clock. No more shifts. For the first time in the history of baseball, players are going to be legislated almost like uh, an illegal defense in the NBA or an offsides in the NHL or professional football or soccer, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, or the NFL. They're going to be legislated where they could play. Never has happened before. I mean, they're legislating when uh, a positional player could come in. I mean, they're basically legislating against all these things that were taboo for years and years, for well over 100 years. And people sat down one day and said, why? Because that's what we do as a society now. We take traditional chains that we put around our ankle. Because, well, you can't do that. And they say, well, is it against the rules? Well, no, but it's taboo. I'm like, well, why? So now we have to legislate because there's a bit of a Frankenstein that comes out of all this stuff. So you've blown it all up. You have a ghost runner for extra innings. It's over. DH in both leagues, it's over. Forget about the National League and the American League, the NL East. At one point, it was two leagues. So in 1969, when you broke it into divisions, you busted up all the tradition. Then you busted up tradition with the wild card. And then you busted up wild card with a play-in. Like, it's, you've gone down this hole. You could argue that you watered down the sport. That's not a conversation for today. And maybe some of these rules will work themselves out and you'll say, hey, that was a, a road too far. But to me at this point, in order for this sport to progress, it's a regional sport. You have to regionalize it. Because guess what? The Mets want to be big boys and spend big. They've got a big spender in Boston. Maybe not this year, but look, it's still a big market club. They got a big spender across town in the Bronx and the Yankees, and it seems like John Middleton's got the revenue in Philadelphia. Those are heavy, 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 heavy hitters, and they could beat the bejesus out of each other. And guess what? I don't believe all four are going to make the postseason. You've just eliminated part of your problem right then and there. You've basically created professional football, uh, the professional football version of Series A and Series B in some cases. You threw all of them in one division. Now, personally for me, you know, I think Bowden is keeping it under the current wild card situation. Four division winners and what is it? Three uh, three wild cards or two wild cards? Oh, four division winners, two wild cards. So six and six in both leagues. I'd go wild. Do just like the NBA and the NHL. Have eight and eight. Have a wild card playing week. Four teams make the wild card. It's a tournament for a week. One and four play three games at the better team's home ballpark. Day off of travel. The next three games, best two out of three a week. The division winners get a week off. They start the postseason a week later. And I personally would say cut the season down by eight games. Get some of that revenue shared because I'm telling you, wild card playing games are going to produce more revenue than eight meaningless end-of-the-year games where you open up the gate like you saw, and it's probably going to rain one of those days where it's going to be freezing cold and early September cold, or it's an NFL Sunday in a, st- in, a, in a town whose team is out of it. Nobody's showing up. Nobody's showing up to run the bases. Nobody's showing up to say goodbye to the players and thanks for a 67-win 60, season or a 75-win season. Nobody's showing up anymore. They're not, unless the tickets are free. Or you're that 
of a masochist that you want to go. You know how many times I've gone to September games, the Mets are out? It's depressing. It's depressing. Look at some of those crowds late September, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, when the Mets are out of it, 2017, 2018. Depressing. Got a doubleheader from a rainout. Look at the Phillies who were actually in the playoffs. They had nobody showing up of a doubleheader against the Nats. Day games in September when it's work. This is easy, guys. Bowden's got a point. Now, you got to get the expansion piece in there so you're not close to something like that. But can they fix the situation with Tampa and Oakland? At some point, you know the politics of Oakland's going to push them out of there. At some point, you got to realize Tampa's not a market necessarily for this team. I know if they bought it, I've heard some people say otherwise, but if Miami's not a market, why would Tampa be? Florida has that trans transitional guys, you know, transitional people going down there, spring training and all these things that make it a little bit different than Dolphins football or Heat basketball. I just don't think baseball will work down there. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't think it'll work. That's an oasis for spring training. You know, teams like the Braves are almost the team of the South. Think about it. They're a team of the South, just like the Cubs of the Midwest and the Cardinals are in the Midwest or whatever they're ver- wherever they are in the, in the geography. They c- encompass more than just Chicago and St. Louis. The Braves encompass the South. Does that mean you can't have a team in Charlotte? Well, I don't know about that. But there's Braves fans up in Charlotte. So maybe the, Jim Bowden has the answer. Because guess what? Even if you do my idea, we have now could four wild card teams, all three come out of that East Division where you know the axis of evil is there with Philadelphia, the Red Sox, and the two New York teams? Maybe. Unlikely. So you're gonna have a big market payroll team sitting home. You happy? Still probably not happy because you don't want Cohen to spend. You don't want him opening up the wound and you don't want him exposing you for what it is. These marketing scam rebuilds that I've talked about for years and years and years, which many Mets fans advocated for five or six years ago when the Wilpons owned the team. They hated the Wilpons, but they were advocating for them to do exactly what they hate. That's what's killing the game. You can rebuild. You can build a farm system, and you can compete and win. There is no reason to tank in any sport. The only sports that make sense are like the NBA or the NFL where you have franchise changing one player. A quarterback could change an NFL team. A great player like Shaq could change a team. But that doesn't happen in the in Major League Baseball. And to a certain degree, it can happen in the NHL, but less likely. So anyway, that's my rant. Realignment, I've said it. I, I proposed this 15 years ago. I wish I could find out. Mine was very similar, maybe not as detailed. Pre-crazy wild card time, pre-DH in both leagues. You've already opened that Overton window in baseball wide open and pushed it wide out there. Just keep pushing it. What does it matter anymore? All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, let's get to the Mets because I know you really want to hear a little bit of Mets. I was playing fun with numbers, and I'm thinking about how can the Mets get closer to that certainty of five-plus runs a game now that Correa is not part of that lineup. And, well, Mark kind of mentioned something, and there is a key member of this veteran team that has gotten some play here early in the uh, spring who maybe has a career year in him. And if he has that career year, that might actually 
take that variability away that we're worried about with the Mets offense. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. The line is on the left side. Escobar goes right into the hole. It was vacated in the shift. Canna will come in to score. And it was wide open, and Escobar delivered. 6-2 Mets. Escobar, we've been seeing this the entire month of September, using that bat like a magic wand, allowing himself to get that ball deep, getting that base hit. McNeil goes to third. Canna scores. They continue to add on in the infield, forced again. Here I am talking about the Mets and their economic impact on uh, everybody else and realignment and how to, you know, punish the Mets without punishing the Mets by putting a salary cap that you know will never happen, that the Players Association will never have. And uh, we're in the midst of spring training. And I just don't want to talk about the ghost fork and the best shape of their lives. And I don't want to make assessments on uh, Adovino or Diaz or Kodai Senga throwing bullpen sessions. I mean, it's cool and everything. I mean, there's been some cool articles. There was a great article at MLB.com about John Curtis, who I'm keeping an eye on out of the bullpen this spring. You know, Kodai Singh on driveline and how he's worked with adapting to the uh, uh, North American professional game. You know, it was interesting. And like I said last week, Singh is one of the biggest topics I'm going to be looking at this spring, along with the kids and whatnot. And our only positional battle, short of something happening or an injury, is going to be um, uh, the bullpen. But... You know, the talk of really the Mets and maybe the soft underbelly of this team, even though I think one of the keys will be Senga and how he can be as close to that number three with number one, two upside that Bassett provided you. That's been a big topic for me. Um, you know, a lot of people don't seem to think that way because they're, they're, they're putting Senga in or penciling him in for something a little bit more than what I see his first year. But they're talking more about the offense. They're concerned about the offense. And, and although they ha- the offense had those brownouts, and I do attribute some of the late-season brownouts to the loss of Starling Marte, and that ties into depth, which we talked about. That's why Alvarez and Beatty and Vientos could become important. And Billy Epler even talked about this, that because of the development of their offensive players and, and how they're a little bit ahead, uh, maybe a little lot of, a lot ahead of their pitchers in this system, they're not as worried about that. But with the veterans that I had talked about, you know, this, the lineup that pretty much is out there, you know, you've got Nimmo in center, you've got Marte in right, you've got Cannon left, you've got McNeil at second, Alonzo at first, Lindor at short, Escobar third, some combination of Nito uh, and Nervaez at, uh, behind the plate. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, you've got the tandem of Vogelback and Ruff at DH, and then Tommy Pham will figure in somewhere uh, into all that, maybe a little DH, maybe subbing in, you know, give uh, Marte, who's had some injuries over the last couple of years, a blow. You know the whole drill here. You know the whole thing. Maybe subs in uh, when there's a tough lefty for Nimmo to take a, a seat. But to me, you know, you heard a couple of things. The first thing is you heard Mark Canna talk about improving and, and maybe hitting with a little more power. And and that always worries me a little bit because – I thought Canna working the count, making contact, and the philosophy of the Mets' offense in general last year was more than enough for them to score. Clearly, they did. I think they were fifth in the league in runs scored. 
they 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 scored about 4.8 runs per game, a little bit less, probably a half run less than we thought they they would, but they scored plenty. And with their starting pitching with their bullpen, maybe some games are a little closer than you like. The only complaint you could have is maybe they didn't bludgeon a few bad teams that they could have bludgeoned to be able to save some of their bullets in the bullpen for higher leverage games against better teams. Maybe there was more higher leverage situation against teams they shouldn't have had than they would have liked. Different argument for a different day. But if Canna could do the power bit without sacrificing who he is, the on-base, and all that stuff, so be it. But to me, the real key, the real guy that hurt this offense last year, outside of the obvious DH, the DH we know is a black hole. The DH was like having a pitcher at times hitting. And I think they're better behind the plate because I think Nito has gotten better offensively. And Narvaez, I think, is, is even though he didn't have a good year, has at least a history of being a potent bat. Uh, and more of a history than maybe what McCann did. But, you know, similar to McCann, he came here, and you're basing it on a smaller sample size. Anyway, you're paying those guys for catch and throw. You could survive with them not hitting in the ninth spot to the level that you want. What you really need is Eduardo Escobar to be more of the Eduardo Escobar pre-pandemic 2018-2019. Now, Escobar, even though he had a down year, from a runs creation standpoint, he was pretty much in line with the prior year. Now, I know it was bunched into a five- or six-week span late season in September, but the numbers in the end were the numbers in the end. He had a very good start to the year in April. When Escobar hit early in the year and late in the year, the Mets scored. And early in the year, they had the benefit of Marte in the lineup. Late in the year, it was even more critical because they didn't have Marte in the lineup. But we don't know what the personal issues were with Escobar. We don't understand everything that was going on. All we know is that he was going through crap off the field last year that impacted him. And then he had an, it was an oblique injury or something or some kind of side injury that sidelined him for a couple of weeks, had a miserable August, struggled for a big chunk of the summer from June onward. And then he came alive in, in September, and he had a pretty decent series against the Padres. If you can get Escobar, who is really playing for that team option, so he is playing for a bit of a contract here, or at least to have that option picked up. You know, you have another bad year, you go back on the free agent market, it's going to cost you money. Can you see the 2018-2019 Eduardo Escobar? I mean, career year in run creation was the 2018 Escobar who played for Minnesota and Arizona, went over to Arizona late in the year, drove in 84 runs. Um, uh, let me get the stuff. De- the, so in 2018... He hit 272, 23 homers, 85 RB, uh, 84 RBIs, 824 OPS. And, you know, in 2019, he had 35 homers, 118 RBIs, 10 triples, by the way. And uh, uh, he had a, a 111 OPS plus, 831 OPS. Uh, that's the player that I think if Escobar could get more into that bandwidth, and I'm not expecting him to hit 35 home runs. Maybe that was that's certainly an outlier. But he's a guy that should be able to hit or has hit close to 30 home runs. His power came on late in the year. And I know he hits better righty than lefty. But, you know, maybe that's something you work out with Beatty at some point if that becomes a thing. I don't know how you fit Beatty on the roster. We talked about that in the open. The roster is pretty much set unless you want to go one less pitcher. Unlikely they would do that. So... To me, you know, and, and I know that there's some predicted regression for Marte. Uh, you know, how is the shift going to impact McNeil? So 
we're assuming everybody else in that lineup performs like last year and you get more normalish out of the rough portion of the platoon. So we're making some assumptions that you don't see Escobar increase to that level and then a McNeil or a Nimmo or a Marte decreases and offsets it. We're assuming that everybody's par that he could elevate. We're assuming best case scenario. But in the end, I think some combination of Canna improving with the power, because I do agree at times I felt he was he he was in the meat of the order where you want him to drive in some runs and he played more like a table setter at times. And Escobar, there was so many times as the sixth or seventh hitter that he would come on with runners on base and would be just such a, a critical out and not even productive outs. He was a weak out. So seeing him happy, seeing him see seeing him kind of uh be you know, he's always that glue guy. That was how he's positioned, you know, bringing the team together, being able to connect no matter what group you have in the clubhouse. A happy Escobar whose off the field situation seems to be solidified, who can then just focus on baseball and focus on getting that option picked up and who knows, maybe getting a contract. A guy that, let's face it, just six or seven weeks ago thought he was out of here because Correa was the third baseman. I mean, what a great story this would be. It would be one of the better stories that if we're sitting here, All-Star break, August, Mets are in first place, and Escobar's having a light sell year. Maybe he makes the All-Star team. Maybe that's asking a lot, but look, he made the All-Star team in 2021. That's a story where you'll see an article written that sometime around New Year, Escobar knew he was going to either be a backup on this team or more than likely was going to be traded for some kind of pitching depth maybe to Miami, maybe somewhere else, because Correa, uh, a a top-five player, top-ten player in the game, was going to take his spot at third base. That fell through. Now Escobar is having a great season, loves it in New York, and probably have his team option picked up so that he could continue to mentor some of the young kids and provide the bridge between veteran Escobar to young Beatty. And that, from a a standpoint of what the Mets envision, the best-case scenario is he plays big, they pick up the team option, and they ease Beatty into this thing without handing him a job unless he's just like David Wright lights out Syracuse AAA, and you're like, hey, just like in 2005 at some point, even though Escobar has a great year, you wave goodbye to Escobar and say it's Beatty time, and you hand him the keys like you did to David in 2005. And I don't want to compare Beatty to David because he's got a long way to go before I could give him anywhere near that kind of comparison. But that's what the Mets did with David, and they competed in 2005, and then they won the division in 2006. So you put the rookie in when he's ready in a veteran lineup, a lot of great things could happen. So there could be some improvements. And now when I ran the the baseball musings calculator with Escobar performing more like 2018, it actually shrunk the variability by about a tenth of a run. So you were much closer to that five runs per game with that player. I didn't really give Canna more power. Let's face it, where the Mets are, if they could get anywhere near the same production as last year, with Escobar playing, even if he's not playing at 2018 level, he's playing more like September or a variation of September or second half, let's say, Escobar. Let's look at his whole numbers in the second half. Not Even though they were awesome in September, spread them out and normalize them through the second half. You got yourself five runs per game. And five runs per game with this team, unless I'm missing something with that bullpen and that rotation, even with Singham being iffy at times, that's plenty enough to uh, win some ball games and to be hit that Pakoda projection of 95-96 wins. So we'll get more into Pakoda and projections another time, but 
you know, look, I think that that is where this Mets team is, and I think that in order to be there, they need to get a little bit more consistency out of the offense, and I think Escobar and Canna certainly play into that. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to wrap up. We're going to talk Tim McCarver, Mailbag, a few other things as we wrap up here on this Sunday. You're listening to the Talking Mets Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Infield playing in all the way around. That's kind of interesting also because a ball that gets through there with them playing in, two runs score, not one. We're only in the fourth inning. And a ground ball to second. Hernandez is not coming home, and the throw goes to first, and there are two away. I don't agree with that. I don't either. I say you send the runner anytime you have uh, in a tie ball game, anytime you're ahead, anytime unless you're two runs down. Runners at second and third, you send the runner from third base because the very worst that can happen is you end up with runners at first and third and two out, which would have been the case there. So they nail Hernandez at home. Well, then at least you're taking a chance on scoring a run in the process of making the out at home. And there's always the chance that the ball could be thrown away sure, or mishandled sure, or something. certainly. I mean, it's not a bang-bang play. No. no play to a catcher is bang-bang. And you've got to tag the runner, too. There's no force. Breaking ball to Mookie Wilson misses. 1-0. Wilson grounded back to the pitcher his first time up. Mookie hitting an even 400, although he hasn't been up very many times. He missed two ball games that shoulder problem. Swing and a miss. One and one. Some people will say, well, you've taken a runner out of scoring position, but what you've done in the process of doing that is not it was with Daryl Strawberry uh, hitting because he can steal second. But what you've done, you've taken a chance on scoring a run and a run that's not a routine play. And a called strike and a beauty from Nepper. And it's one and two. If you're two runs down and you send the runner from third, then you end up with a runner at first and third and two out, but not a runner in scoring position. So you do it with runners at second and third and anything less than one run down. That's my that's the way I play it. I would agree. And it kind of goes against the aggressive baseball David Johnson has been playing for him not to send the runner. But as we have said many times up here, there are many ways to play it. That's why it's a great game to talk about. There's Davey, Frank Howard. All right, we're back. And I uh, played a nice clip there of a Mets-Astros game. I think that was from 1984, 85 can't remember but you heard the legendary broadcaster the late Tim McCarver giving basically his analysis and you know uh, I had heard Tim on the Boone podcast about a year ago and he didn't sound great I didn't know he was sick and um, I've said this a long uh, for a long time you know with Howie Rose and Gary Cohn being we talked about this inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame the Mets have been so blessed to have so many great broadcasters and Baseball is this sport, um, and I think even other than the NFL, the other sports are like this too. I mean, Vaccaro, Mike Vaccaro wrote a great article about McCarver in the Post, and I recommend you you read it. I didn't realize how transformative McCarver was with the analyst game. I remember him as a kid. I started watching baseball in the 80s. I remember the, he's playing too deep. Strawberry's playing too deep. I, that's a horrible imitation, but I remember that. That's one of the more iconic 
uh, you know, quotes from McCarver because everybody remembers that about the criticisms of Strawberry. And I remember the controversy. I particularly remember one controversy with McCarver criticizing Bobby Valentine. It was the first Subway series at Shea Stadium, 1998. Not the first one ever. The first one was the previous year at Yankee Stadium. It was a Friday night. The Mets were ahead. And Bobby Valentine left Mel Rojas in to face Paul O'Neill late in the ball game with the Mets ahead. And O'Neill hit a home run off of Rojas. Um... He had thought he should have brought in the lefty, he, uh, McCarver. Bobby V did not bring in the lefty. He left Rojas in. And then I think the next night or the next day, Bill Pulsifer was brought in out of the bullpen to face the lefty. He gave him a hit. I think McCarver, uh, Valentine pointed up at the press box a little bit, saying, hey, I did it your way. See why I didn't bring him in yesterday? He can't get lefties out. Ironically, Rojas was a guy that did get lefties out as a righty. So maybe pre-analytic age, that would have been a little bit different. But... Anyway, um, did not realize how transformative, how much of a pioneer that McCarver was in the analyst game. He's one of the voices from my youth, uh, listening to the Mets, Steve, Steve Sabritsky, Ralph Kiner, uh, Rusty Staub also at some points, Fran Healy. Um, so sad news about McCarver uh, passing, but did not uh, uh, guess I never realized how impactful he was those early years with how he brought his style to the broadcast. And now when you see the Apple broadcast, uh, Apple broadcast and some of the carnival type of an anal- analysis that's there and all the attempts to do humor or, you know, these Twinkie Munch interviews, you know, it's so much like, okay, you bring a coach off the sidelines or a manager outside of the dugout to ask him two or three questions in the midst of the game. That's just not, that's not the time. They don't want to answer those things. It's like when you're working and you're in the zone, do you want to answer what you're doing or do you want to say, hey, let me finish my job. I'll talk to you after. That's kind of what you want to do. So great article by Mike Vaccaro. Even brings up the, the, the great Marv Albert how basically there are certain voices as we follow these teams that we always remember. And even though they're gone, they're gone for a long time, their tag phrases or whatever they're known for still stick in our head, and they become part of the fabric of how we watch the game and what we expect from those that follow. And certainly Tim McCarver set such a high bar of, uh, of analysis that you know maybe Keith and Ron have, have reached that bar. Uh, Seaver was very critical when he was in the booth for the Mets, um, but I think Seaver's criticism was he struggled to identify with anybody other than the elite Hall of Fame player on the field. That was always my feeling listening to Seaver. Seaver could identify with Pedro Martinez, but he can never identify with Aaron Heilman or with Victor Zambrano or, you know, anybody but the best of the best. You know, he couldn't identify with them because he was never those guys. He was always Pedro Martinez and what have you. So uh, just a few thoughts there about Tim McCarver. And I thought that was an interesting clip that I played that gives you, I know everybody likes to play the Luis Gonzalez World Series hit 2001 when he was on the national stage broadcasting. I mean, the World Series. Uh, Joe Buck, Tim McCarver were the voices of the World Series up until recently. Like, I, That's what you thought of. When you when you played Stratomatic with your own announcing in a big moment, you were thinking of those voices, the Buck, Joe Buck and Tim McCarver because they were on that national stage and they were there every October and what have you. So I found that clip and I thought that was interesting because that clip um, – you know, it was a Met clip, and it gave you an assessment of how critical he could be during a ball game. So 
that was something there. I uh, want to go through a couple of mailbags here, too. Uh, Jack Leary, who first was one of the guys that uh, wrote to me and asked, you know, what do you think about Jim Bowden's uh, suggestion about realignment? Well, I gave that to you. And then uh, he wanted me to go into a little bit about the fringe bullpen guys like Lucchese, uh Green, uh, Brigham, Ridings, Curtis. And I talked a little bit about this, Jack, last week. I think John Curtis, to me, is going to be one of the more interesting um, names to watch this spring. And there was an article about him on MLB.com. I think it was Anthony DeComo. You know, he talked a little bit about how he had learned so much, you know, even though the Mets, it was unfortunate that Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom spent so much time in Port St. Lucie rehabbing last summer. The fact that uh, he was able to, Curtis, while he was rehabbing from Tommy John, spend so much time down there, uh, you know, with those guys, you know, that that was something that, um, you know, he took away. So I'm looking, you know, Curtis was becoming uh, a bit of a dominant reliever when he was traded to Milwaukee from Miami in the middle of 2021. And, uh, you know, then he got hurt. So the Brewers didn't really realize any of that. And, uh, you know, we'll see. You know, the the Rule 5 pick green, uh, ridings. I mean, I think the Mets have done a good job here, and I think Billy Epler said it, with having five really good relievers. You know, assuming that uh, Rayleigh could be the lefty that you saw in Tampa. And then the the depth guys, like the Brighams, you know, uh, and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, you could shuttle those guys when they have options. Uh, they allow you to have better innings from you know six, seven, and eight in the bullpen when you have you know nothing is more frustrating. And I always go back to the game against Atlanta, where Juan Lopez could not close out that first game of the doubleheader in August when they swept that doubleheader on that Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, and they had to bring in Edwin Diaz to close it out. And I said to myself, you know, that is frustrating because that is how you you lose a game the next day because you had to burn your best reliever to save a game that should have been over, you know, that inning without much uh, stress. You get a five-run lead, eighth inning, you should be able to bring in a guy to get you through the eighth and the ninth without much drama. And I know the game is different. Look, a bloop and a blast, it's a three-run game. The game is different now. Everybody can hit home runs. It's not like the 1980s where you get the six, seven, eight, nine guys. Those guys aren't power threats, so you got to string together two or three hits. And even the most league average of pitchers, it's not easy to string together two or three or four hits. Now it's a bloop and a blast, but still, you get my point. You have to have competent relievers that don't walk batters. And that's the one thing I really am going to be looking at. Who has the command and control? Because the walks are going to be equally detrimental this year depending on how the the size of the bases play with the running game because they're basically giving you're basically handing doubles to, to teams and you can't you know throw over more than once so if you have a fast runner you're dead so walks are going to be a big thing at that point so thank you jack for your comment and uh thank you for listening to the ball game michael mccauley i love this one mike you're killing me the whole thing with the pronunciation the mets players names it's now part of the show and this new catcher is the worst jet. You're right. He is the worst jet. It's more natural to say Navarez like you do rather than Narvaez, which doesn't make sense and so much tougher than Adovino. Love the show and your expertise on all subject Mets. I can't think of a question now, but I will send one. Well, it was actually not a question, but uh, you just, you basically called me out for flubbing the names. 
I can't blame you on that, uh, Michael. So, you know, I'm going to try this right now. I think I'm getting better at this. But, you know, uh, so let's go here. What is this? Nervaez. Let's let's make sure. Let's do a little Omar Nervaez. Nervaez, not Nervaez. Narvaez. Narvaez. Yeah, Narvaez. If you go to the pronunciation, Narvaez. Not Narvaez. Narvaez. V-I-E. Narvaez. So I think I got this one right now. Narvaez. It took me a little bit. Uh, Narvaez, I think I said. Narvaez. It's Narvaez. Jeez, you know, this stuff gets cra- I gotta tell you, this gets tricky, these names and whatnot. And as and here's the best part. See, because part of it in the offseason is I'm not listening to the ball game. When you listen to the ball game and you hear the announcers and you hear it so often, it becomes much easier. So it's almost like association by listening. Your brain gets trained on the whole thing. So anyway, thank you, Michael. I know that some people hate the mispronunciation of names. Some people thought it was big. Someone said it was like, and I, and I forgive, forgive me because I, I would love to give you credit. I'm not mad about it. Someone thought it was me being edgy. It's not me being edgy. It's me being me. You know, it's really me being me. So uh, anyway, one last comment from the mailbag, which I thought was interesting, uh, from Dave from Florida. Um, Mets are in great shape roster-wise in Flushing, and Syracuse may have one of the best Mets AAA teams of all time. The fact that they can have Alvarez, Vientos, Beatty, Mauricio somewhere in the outfield with vets like Mendick, Peraza, who was actually, you know, Jose Peraza who was with the team a couple of years ago, was a big prospect of the Braves system and has been a part of a couple of blockbuster trades. I didn't realize that. Almonte in the outfield, LaCastro, and Michael Perez behind the plate is incredibly impressive. The pitching is deep as well. My guess is McGill, Lucchese, Buto, and Hernandez with the main rotation pieces. Deep pen, too, with some very interesting arms. I'd use Deoka as the closer and a host of interesting set of guys. The lefty from the Orioles... McKenna, oh, this one, if you guys think I'm going to get this one right, Muckenhern, Muckenhern, Muckenherm. It'll be interesting to watch as well as Hartwig and Riding. So, uh, you know what? I, I know that guy was picked up, Muckenherm, and I, I can't find him on. You know what? I'm going to, that's for, that name is for another day. So, Muckenherm, that's it. But, Dave, you know, thanks for the comment uh, about the Metro AAA team. Got me into thinking. You know, what are some of the best, you know, Mets, AAA teams? And, you know, uh, I actually brought up the 19, the best, well, let me back up here. What are some of the best minor league teams all time? It actually made me think about that. And I went to baseball reference, and believe it or not, they ranked the 100 best minor league baseball teams all time. They did it by record, but some that stood out that I thought were interesting were and I have to do contemporary because, you know, I don't want to go back. Like, for me to bring up the 1934 Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League, who were affiliated of the Chicago Cubs, the names there, maybe there's a couple of names you'll know, Hall of Famers, but there's no connection. We have to be somewhat contemporary here. But the 11th best team all time was the 1981 Albuquerque Dukes, who won 94 ball games of the Pacific Coast League, a Dodgers affiliate. Who was on that team made me, uh, you know, think. So... Brian Holton, major leaguer, uh, Candy Maldonado, Mike Marshall, Alejandro Pena, Ted Power, Ron Renicky, Brent Strom. Um, not a bad, no, no, some nice names on that team. Another team that came up on the list, more contemporary, was the 1992 Greenville Braves, which had uh, Pedro Borbone, they had uh, Chipper Jones, Mike Kelly. 
who was a big prospect for the Braves, didn't pan out, but played for them. Javi Lopez, Greg McMichael, Mike Mordecai, Melvin Nieves, who I think was involved in the Fred McGriff trade, Eddie Perez, Mets fans know him very well. Uh, Tony Tarasco, Mets fans know him very well, was a coach recently. Jeff Treadway, a veteran on that club. Uh, Brad Woodell, who play, who uh, uh, who pitched for the Braves. And then the 1993 Harrisburg Senators came up on the list, the team that won 94 games. Expos affiliate had guys like Miguel Batista. You guys remember him, met, you know, there at the end of his career. Shane Andrews, uh, Joey Eichen, Cliff Floyd. Um, who else is on this team? Yorkies Perez, Curtis Pride. Also, I met Kurt Reeder. You guys remember him for the Giants, pitching against the Mets in the postseason. Yugi Urbina, you know, big-time closer at one point. Gabe White, lefty uh, out of the bullpen, I think, for Cincinnati in the Expos. Rondell White was on that team. So, you know, interesting how and, – and then it made me say, okay, let me go to, like, a, a Mets team that – you know, so let's go to those early 80s Mets teams. You know, what do the 84 Tidewater Tides look like? You had guys like – Kevin Mitchell and Clint Hurdle and Herm Winningham, who was a big-time prospect. And almost, you know, one of the things I learned from Frank Cashin is that the Expos and the Gary Carter trade were trying to hold out for Mookie Wilson instead of Herm Winningham in that deal. Because, I mean, Herm, and, and Herm Winningham was a guy that uh, was very fast, had a good minor league career, could run, and, you know, maybe was thought of as someone who could replace Mookie, a young player who could replace Mookie. And we all know Winningham never really... Um, panned out, but Raphael Santana was on that 8014, John Gibbons, Jose Okendo, Kelvin Chapman, John Stearns, veteran, probably getting some uh, rehab time down there. Pitchers were Rick Anderson, Sid Fernandez, Tim Leary, Kelvin uh, Chiraldi, who was a big-time uh, uh, prospect for the Mets, Wes Gardner. These are the guys they got Bobby Ojeda for. So, uh, yeah, you know what, Dave from Florida? Uh, your comment about this AAA team being one of the best in Mets history, is fair. What I think it tells you is the Mets have some interesting depth accumulated for the roster machinations, like I said. And this is what is, we talked about this last week. Let's see who impresses us in the spring. You know, from the positional player side, not because they're going to make the club, but Danny Mendick isn't going to make the club. At least I don't think so. But can he sub in if Lindor goes on the DL for a week? Or, um, you know, Guillaume is out like he was last year. What's the downgrade with these guys? So anyway, so uh, an interesting comment from Dave from Florida. Thanks for listening. I want to thank all of you for listening. Of course, if you want to contribute to the show, we don't do a mailbag segment. This one played out like a mailbag segment. But what we do do is we interweave your comments into the show, and I like to give you credit. So if you give me an idea, and sometimes you guys give me ideas that I already have, but I still like to give you credit because ultimately this is about us, me doing this show only works if you're listening and if you're participating. And, you know, if I'm just talking into a tin can here and nobody's listening, then it's like me talking to myself. I have these ideas. I could, you know, I could enjoy the game in my own time, my way. It's about us sharing it together. And over the last few weeks when I've started this segment, I have gotten some good ideas from you. And there's still some ideas that have been put out there that I like to get to. I just, every show you have to make it relevant. So keep bringing them. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, no G. Sometimes you could tweet it at me. It's easy to email me. It's easy for me to kind of parking lot the whole thing so that I could get to it when the show comes. So, all right, that's it. That's all I got for you on this latest edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. You could check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. 
pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You could also get me on Instagram, Mike Silva. Oh, excuse me. TalkingMets, no G. Blah. And of course, I want to thank the good folks from the Fan Side and Podcasting Network for supporting the show. I am your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast, the Grapefruit League edition, next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike.